It's Thursday, September 24th, and you are listening to the 13th episode of Combing the Stacks. We are a music podcast covering six decades of music, three albums at a time. Each week, we dig into the top 100 albums of the 1960s, as identified by our friends at the website besteveralbums.com. Your hosts are the trio of John, Josh, and Matt, and we're excited to cover three very exciting albums. This week, we'll be covering albums 67, 64, and 60 on the countdown, as the weather gets colder and we draw closer to the midway point. This week's selections include some of the most unique individuals of the 1960s and features two debuts and the early work of a rock legend. We start things off with Josh covering Captain Beefheart and his magic band. He'll discuss their debut album, Safe as Milk, and provide context leading up to the recording. Our second segment has us revisiting the catalog of Bob Dylan, this time a much earlier version of his work. Matt will cover The Times They Are Changing, which is Dylan's first collection of entirely original work and predates his time going electric. In our final segment, John discusses the woman called an ingenue, a muse, a chanteuse, or simply by her nickname, Nico. We'll dive into the 1967 album Chelsea Girls by the German singer and discuss whether she is more style or more substance. It's great to have you along for the trip, and we thank you for being a listener. Get the ship confused Will not be understood As the spoken Or the chains of the sea Will have busted in the night And be buried off the bottom Of the ocean A song will lift As the main sails Ships and the boat Drifts Magic Margaret wonder just how high they go here they come now see them run now here they come September 24th, if you are listening on day one, and you are here, back again with Combing the Stacks, back with John, back with Josh, back with Matt, the dream team, some people have called us, people are saying that we're the dream team, is what I'm hearing. Uh, Josh, how are you doing? I'm digging this fall weather. It's hump day in the DMV, and you know what that (laughs) means, combing the stacks. (laughs) That's that's what people, (laughs) actually, taping combing the stacks. (laughs) So people are getting a one-day lead time on that, but yes, you're 100% right. 
The DMV? We're at the DMV? What? No. The D- well, we are. Me and DC you. Metro, Virginia. Yeah. Well, Matt's not. DC in the Maryland, DMV. Virginia. Oh. I've been gone too long. I, f- I forgot what that was. Yes. So Matt used to be in the DMV, but now he's, he's made his touch. pilgrimage up to. Yeah. Now, like, up to the, yeah. <laughs> up to the land of. Up into the land where the pricks look at the leaves, right? New England. So. Lots of the lots of uh, well the lots of the former anyway. Yeah. So. And speaking of pricks, how are you, Matt? <laughs> I'm doing great. I I I, I was <laughs> I was uh, listening to last week's podcast and I thought, man, you guys sound way better than I do. So I needed to up my game by getting some new equipment. Yeah. So so, uh, so all the listeners out there, we all have new equipment. We're using a new recording setup, so the sound quality should be improved. For all those people that were commenting on that. And, uh, yeah, you now could, we're at full power like Voltron. Yeah, you people can shut up now. <laughs> no more lights out gorilla radio. We're now no more complaints. Stuff. Well, yeah, now we also, have, we also have fewer excuses why we might suck, so we got to bring it. And that's kind of what you're going for. It's like if you're going to suck, suck the right way, which is to be terrible at your job as opposed to audio deficiencies. So we've narrowed off one of the big ones right there. Fail exactly. upwards. So last week we came in at a cool about a minute – Oh, excuse me, a minute, an hour and 30 minutes. It might have felt like a minute to some of those people that were on two hours and other weeks. So I'm going to kind of do what we did last week. We did a little intro. I think it's time, and I'm going to make sure I go nice and slow since people were giving me all kinds of humorous asides on my, my you know, two to three week uh, weakness in terms of wordplay. So I'm going to go very slow and enunciate, and I'm going to say cleaning the stacks and it's going to be matt who is going to be cleaning the stacks first yeah i was uh i was very close this week to not having any stacks to clean but because last week i wanted to say this and i had it in front of me on my computer and we got so engrossed in our conversation about John Coltrane that I just totally forgot about it. So did you guys realize that last Friday, the 60th um, anniversary uh, extended Giant Steps Deluxe uh, Edition was released um, right in time, right in time with our uh, timely episode? That's um, the type of thing that you should put on Twitter if anybody decided to do Twitter <laughs> besides me. So that's a good, yeah, uh, that's a good uh, coincidence. Maybe John Coltrane was listening from beyond the grave. Yeah, giving us his, giving us his, his blessing. Yes. <laughs> As most of you guys to... say, I just don't understand any of this jazz stuff. So he's yeah. trying to get us to a uh, plug and plug his uh, his his stacks and trying to get some more uh, sales going. So you can get the two LP set for thirty one ninety eight. Okay. Um, so have at it, man. John Coltrane, good stuff. I'd like to think that the spectral figure of John Coltrane at least appreciates me attempting to use all that jazz terminology, no matter how much it drives our listeners crazy. So rock on, John Coltrane. So rock on. R.I.P. Yep. <laughs> Do you know how many people, by the way, got on my case for the fact that when Josh was riffing on his herbs last week and not riffing while on herbs, but about his herbs, which I he think might have, he might've been on herbs though. Let's be which, honest. Which we I were think not was, sure about that, which I think was one of the most favorite segments in combing the stacks history in terms of the <laughs> feedback that I've gotten. Josh is aside on herbs. And I think people could tell that Matt and I were somewhat, somewhat not able to improv at the normal way that we were <laughs> because Matt seemed genuinely surprised as was mentioned many times. And I, in attempting to connect with Josh, apparently made quite a fool of myself because as I attempted to add other 
things to the equation with what I thought were herbs. I apparently was naming tons of spices, but not a herb amongst them. <laughs> yeah, so I think you said people pointed. Yep, I think you said cumin. <laughs> yes, as many many people pointed out to me, as Josh is going on about the herbs and Matt is doing it, you just keep spitting out a bunch of spices, John, and just it's it is you're going in the exact opposite way. So I apologize, guys, for my lack of. Uh, awareness of the fact that I was throwing out spices instead of herbs. I also got a ton of feedback on this episode, but no one gave me a list of herbs, which really disappointed me. Now, I didn't put it out on Twitter or any of the other things, so I I probably should do that. But did you guys get any herb feedback? Only from my wife. Okay. Unfortunately. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I I didn't even get that from my wife. She just (laughs) laughed at the segment. So maybe it was only... So it was popular to listen to, but not to solicit feedback. I'm sorry that the question was so complicated for you. Yeah, guys. Josh, I, th- I think you might. I think Josh is just operating on a different level, so that that's how his mind goes. It's like the genius of Josh, where he's up on these uh, herbs, and everybody else is just kind of, you know, not really thinking like that. So, so I'm, um, I'm like Captain Beefheart. Yeah, I think Josh is our is is the king of the one-liners, and uh, Matt and I really need to keep up with it because uh, we got to make sure this stuff doesn't slide under the radar. Well, John, you might want to spend there. some more time in the kitchen too to to, to familiarize yourself with some ter- you know common culinary terminology. Like I said, it's one of those things when you try to be relatable and try to jump into a conversation, you're just not good enough at doing it. You know, the type of thing that a host should probably be able to do. But, you know, I'm a work in progress. I'm no freaking Joe Rogan over here. So, you know, I'm going to continue to work <laughs> thank, on thank that. Thank God. Yeah, well, <laughs> we'll see. We'll get some MMA fighters on here as our fourth person, maybe some professional skeptics. And, you know, we'll be combing the stacks experience. And. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and and then instead of the 20% of females who listen, we'll be officially down to like 3% of females who listen. So, yeah. It, it's a good icebreaker if you ever want to use it on a date. We might be there already. Well, <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll file that away, you know, <laughs> with herbs. And I'll, I'll make sure that I report that back never on the show. I'm sure so, that won't yep. come across as creepy. So I, I think so. But it didn't for Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> and apparently, you know, their goal of meeting women, it probably worked for them is what I'm guessing. And with that, speaking of things that work for us, I think that we have three three albums that are going to work for a pretty damn good podcast this week because we have some very interesting human beings, one of whom we're revisiting for the third time, Bob Dylan, and then two people that we're going to be visiting for the first time who have I I know who I'm covering in terms of Nico and I know that there's a hell of a backstory there and Captain Beefheart I'm vaguely familiar with that but I know there's a hell of a backstory there as well so what we're gonna do is we're gonna make a Bob Dylan sandwich which probably isn't the only time Bob Dylan's been in a sandwich in the roaring 60s but he's gonna be in the middle and then we're gonna put Captain B <laughs> Captain Beefheart you know if you're gonna have front end of a sandwich what better way to than to have a Beefheart right and then Nico on the other end of it and so I'm pretty excited about this episode what do you guys think think this is going to be one of the good ones or is this going to be you know one of the ones we're going to bury away and talk about how we didn't hit it they're all good they are (laughs) matt how about you yeah we're yeah we're so good at this right now we're gonna we're gonna be talking about this for decades that's what i hear that's we'll be immortalized you know on our various platforms there's now 10 of them for those that don't stick around at the end of the show follow us on at combing the on twitter we'd love to hear from you like i said a youtube page is coming within a month so i'll and that's also news to josh and matt continually but one of these days we'll talk about it as a trio as well all right i'm gonna shut up because it's time to find a magic band and find a captain beefheart and so josh take us away all right so 
first up in the intro, you're going to hear Zigzag Wanderer from in the opening montage. And then right now you're going to hear Abba Zabba. Song before song before song blues. Okay, we're back. So, Captain Beefheart, as John said, is a very interesting dude. And you can quote me on that. Yes. <laughs> He's a very cool dude. Um, John Walt. Um, he was born Don Glenn Vliet in 1941 in Glendale, California. He died December 7th, 2010 at the age of 69. His band was known as the Magic Band and was a rotating ensemble. That is important because there it was literally rotating because it seemingly changed from album to album and then sometimes while recording albums he was known for combining free jazz blues rock and avant-garde music he started out as a child he had an interest in sculpting and painting to the point where he worked with a local tutor and who said he was a child prodigy However, his parents discouraged him from sculpting and even declined several scholarships for him to study sculpting in Europe. I could I didn't get a lot of background on what his parents were like or why they were so against him sculpting, but um, I think this early experience and his relationship with his parents shaped him in the future. In fairness, um, though, Captain Beefheart as an engineer would not be as successful a moniker. Right. So, I think yeah. that's... Yeah. Do you Go think ahead, if man. he had a different art form, like if, was it sculpting specifically or was it just he wanted to pursue the arts? Or they just have like a weird, like, uh, you know, they just you valued know, animosity. education more, I believe, is what it was, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was interested in painting too, to the point where that's what he pursued later on in uh, for the rest of his life after he stopped being uh, in the band um, in, in the 80s. Um, actually, his paintings are. Are quite uh, valuable apparently um, he moved to the Mojave Desert as a teen in this town called Lancaster California um, with his parents and developed his taste in music with blues acts like Robert Johnson John Coltrane Sunhouse Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf um, this is also where in high school he became friends with Frank Zappa he would yes, later he, he would later compete and collaborate with him I like to think of them as frenemies he and Zappa moved uh, to Cucamonga, California, later on after high school, where they wait record- was that like Camp Cucamonga, the TV the TV movie special with like uh, Steve Urkel and Winnie Cooper. Do you remember that? Oh no, I don't remember. Nobody that. saw it. You don't see Camp Cucamonga. It I was- think I think I know what you're talking about, but I don't remember <laughs> that uh, specific TV it, movie. It must be the same place. Yeah, probably. Um, Please go on, Josh. <laughs> Please go on, Josh. I just had to put that out there. I mean, I, I can't be the only one that saw that. Well, well, I'll bring that up on Cleaning the Stacks next week. There you um, go. They moved to Cucamonga, um, and they recorded some songs, and they were going to sh- shoot a film titled Captain Beefheart versus the Grunt People, but that went nowhere. That uh, was the pity. first appearance of the name of Captain Beefheart as well. There seems to be multiple accounts of where the name came from, and all of them seem suspect. Um, mm. The bottom line is that Frank Zappa seem to have created it or created it in collaboration with um 
with uh, Don Van Vliet. I saw Frank Zappa, Frank Zappa gave an interview when I was doing my research for the Mothers of Invention, and he mentioned that it was actually after, I guess, Captain Beefheart's uncle, who gave his, maybe it was his penis, the nickname of Captain Beefheart. Yeah. And flashed, fa- flashed them or I, something I, like that? I mean, that? let's be honest. It was almost certain to be phallic in nature. I mean, it, it had to. But it was like a weird story where his uncle was flashing him, and I'm like, there's a there's more to the that that's there's more that's more serious than what you're making it seem like it is in the in the fifties and sixties you buried that shit hard Matt you know what I mean something <laughs> <laughs> didn't come out I, I mean I, not to get on too much of a tangent but I think his uncle left the door open when he was going to the bathroom that's what I read or something ah. and then the aunt would walk by and he would make some crude joke <laughs> the uncle did or whatever that was one of the we, things I we heard were gonna drag that story around. out of you Josh and you were trying to be so polite and that's, we're gonna make sure that we earn that explicit moniker that we put uh, on. Our listeners demand the. Our <laughs> yeah. listeners demand the truth. Hey, yeah. I can talk about beef hearts all day. That's fine. <laughs> Continue though. <laughs> um, uh, after after not really doing anything in Cucamonga, Zappa moved to Los Angeles and formed the Mothers of Invention. Don went back to Mojave and became Captain Beefheart and formed the first iteration of the Magic Band in 1965. This is where he changed his name to. Don Van Vliet as well, legally. So from Glenn to Van in the, in the middle there. Uh, the Magic Band and him signed to A&M Records. At this time, they had two singles, one successful cover called Diddy Wah Diddy, which is pretty catchy, and the other t- um, titled Moonchild, which both of those were released in 1966. Um, Moonchild was not as successful. Then they were recorded demos for for what would become safe as milk however the a&m co-founder jerry moss and a&m uh is jerry moss and herb alpert of the tijuana brass said that the direction of the band was quote too negative and they they were dropped by the label by the end of 1966 they signed to buddha records which is based out of new york i read and is also spelled incorrectly during the late, <laughs> during the, I guess they later fixed it, or when Sony bought them, they changed it back. Or they apparently the weren't magic spelling. spellers, were yeah. they? Just the magic band, yeah. During this late 1966 period, uh, Ry Cooter joined the Magic Band at the eight, ripe old age of 20, mm. and already then he was considered a guitar prodigy. In sp- the spring of 1967, they started recording. Um, the actual album outside of those initial demos and the album was released in September of 1967. So this album is their first album. I didn't say that at the beginning. The album failed to chart in the U.S. and in fact none of their albums ever cracked the top 100 either in the U.S. or the U.K. So this is really very much a band that is what would be considered a cult classic if it was a movie, you know, that underground band i guess you could say influence you say would you say that captain beefheart was a grower for his audience josh (laughs) yes i would okay especially among artists he's very influential like a lot of the bands that we've talked about but not successful necessarily um with the general public and i'm really going to stop there because this is their first album and um we don't need we're going to discuss one other album of theirs, which is considered the magnum opus of Captain Beefheart, and I'll give a little bit more of the later background about that and how things ended up with, with Captain Beefheart. I do have some fun facts, though, and mm. some trivia. 
I got a Beatles corner reference for you, Matt. Oh. Both Lennon and McCartney were fans of Captain Beefheart. However, Captain Beefheart was critical of the Beatles and notably made fun of them on his follow-up album, Strictly Personal. And the song was called Beetle Bones and Smoking Stones. And <laughs> so he some... and Zappa shared that sort of uh, ironic dis- discard for the Beatles? Disregard, I, think, I should say? I yeah. think so, yeah. Did he? Ha- did, did, uh, did Captain Beefheart have any run-ins with McCartney or Lennon that you, that you read about, Josh, at all? Yeah. In fact, he did. Uh, apparently, they hung... He, there's some... In- story that he tells where he hung out with McCartney but then McCartney says that he never remembers it happening so um he did he did uh, interact with both of them though at, at one point or another uh, there's also a story of him writing a letter to Lennon and Yoko Ono in support of their love-in and then they never responded or something like that and so then he he got mad about that as <laughs> he, well he took that personal <laughs> yeah <laughs> I read that as well. Um, this is interesting. They were supposed to be in the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. During a warm-up performance the week before at a different venue, Vliet suffered severe anxiety attacks that convinced them that he was having a heart attack. He froze up on stage and then proceeded to walk straight <laughs> off the 10-foot stage and fell onto their manager. <laughs> Ouch. So they, as a result, they did not play Monterey Pop. Uh, Ry Cooter also left the band after this happened, saying that Captain Beefheart was too self-destructive in the drama, <laughs> and and they would never be, never would. This would prevent them from having success if they can't even you know get their act together enough to perform. So, right when I had the visual of Captain Beefheart writing a heartfelt letter to John and Yoko <laughs> Ono, now I get one of him face planning off of a stage. There, uh, th- this also gets back to the constant personnel changes of the band. Apparently, he was f- famously difficult to work with. And I did watch an old BBC documentary about Captain Beefheart uh, from the 90s, and, and they this confirms that as well. Also, our, our friend uh, Jimmy Carl Black, the Indian of the group, he was also in the Magic Band at one point, <laughs> and he was, in the, he was in the documentary, so I saw him in person, which was hilarious. I swear in the 60s, it was like the same 250 people were just alternating on everybody's albums, as we'll find out in a later album, too. Josh, was, was Jimmy Carl Black the Indian of this group, too, or did he have competition? There is some sort of, like, parentheses names uh, for him that said he's the Indian. So I think he was the Indian of this group as well. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And um, this is for John. Uh, this mm-hmm. is a trivia question. Okay. One of your favorite bands has covered electricity on a deluxe version of their album in 2007. Do you know what band I am referring to? Oof. Uh, I believe did Sonic Youth cover them? Ding, ding, ding! You are yes. correct, sir. Mm-hmm. I was going to say Van Halen. <laughs> he did not feed me that question either, but I do know Sonic Youth do like Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart. So, yep. yep. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they covered that for a. There was a Captain Beefheart tribute album in the UK or something, and that was never released or never released by Sonic Youth, and then they. So that was on that. I'll have to search for that. So that is it the lineup of the group at this time when safe as milk came out is don van bleet he played vocals he knew how to play harmonica he was on the arrangements as well alex st Clair snoofer was guitar and backing vocals Ry cooter was on guitar slide guitar bass and some other things and arrangements as well jerry hanley was on bass and john french was on drums and that changes as i said shortly after this 
to the point where they couldn't even get a steady guitarist, it seemed like, to match Ry Cooter's ability. And that's all for the bio. How did you guys react to this album? And was it as safe as milk? Go ahead, Matt. I'll let you start. Well, I have to start by saying I really didn't know anything about this uh, Captain Beefheart. I knew the name mm-hmm. um, thrown around here and there, but never knew any songs. So this was all new to me. And I thought this album was cool as hell, man. This was a great <laughs> lesson from the get-go. This was not something that I needed to you know, uh, listen to over and over again, although I did, but I didn't need to do it to realize that I liked it. Um, it's, it's great. It's, there's a lot of, um, I I like the production of it. It's got a very lo-fi type quality to it. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's very bluesy. It's got some cool, like Southern, um, kind of slide guitar rock going on. Um, and it reminds, it's, it's, I could totally see, artists doing stuff like this today it reminded me of guys like jd mcpherson if you know that guitar player or um some of the even mayor hawthorne or um uh nathaniel rateliff you know it's 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 very it's kind of like a southern rock um bluesy kind of style but it's done in this production that's very um it's it's got it's got edge to it you know and his his voice is great you know he's got this this kind of crazy chaotic voice um, and it really comes out in something like electricity where he's just the, 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 the effect that he's doing with his voice is just over the top, kind of creepy, scary kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and there's some doo-wop in here. Like, uh, what is it? I'm glad is, is a very yep. kind of like doo almost kind of something that you could, you know, it's, it's almost like an Amy Winehouse type of song, you know, with the, the backgrounds, uh, the, the music that's going on here. But, uh, this was a fun listen. This was, this is great. This is, this is borderline pretty things for me in terms of my level of surprise and my level of enjoyment. I don't think there was a dud on here. Um, if I had to pick a song that might not have, uh, you know, hit me as much as the other ones, it probably would be the last track autumn's child, mm-hmm. but even that was still good. It's, I think that one's a little bit different. Um, it's got kind of a, the interesting choral part. Um, I don't. I don't know how to describe it, but like an echoey choral part. Um, but no, this was uh, this was re- <laughs> this was a really cool record, and it made me want to listen to more. So, uh, uh, big thumbs up from me. I read a review that said that Autumn's Child reference, uh, which is the last track, was very much in the Pink Floyd vein. I don't know if you're saw that at all it's it's a little bit more of an avant-garde kind of a thing um i I didn't pick up pink floyd when i when i heard it but uh, just thinking about that off the top of my head it doesn't it's it's not terribly shocking but it's it's a little bit it is a little bit of a different sound than the other songs um but uh this is just like a dirty rock record you know like a bluesy bar like just fun and then there's some avant-garde stuff in here too but uh yeah i'll i'll leave it at that for right now john what about you I really like this album quite a bit. I, I think I got a different vibe off of it. It definitely has a blues. I mean, the verse song sounds like when you talked about him listening to Robert Johnson, sure enough. And yes, I do. Sounds like he's just taking a modern version of Robert Johnson from when we covered him before with better production yeah. and a little bit more going on by the time we get to drop out boogie. And I'm glad I, I know that you said, I forget how you, de- you described. I'm glad to me. It was like early sixties. So, um, not even soul it's like almost like girl group like production pop music sound mm-hmm. like i was saying do du- like doo-wop 
Yeah, doo-wop would be a good description, I think, too. It's it's It almost sounds of the late 50s and early 60s, the type of pop that was being produced there. I, lo I love that the album wanders all over the place, and I actually was impressed by how good he was at the different things that he did, because mm -hmm. it would seem as if when you're veering around this way, especially after you hear how he do, does blues, which is strong, you, you might say, well, maybe stay in that lane for a little bit more, but there's a blues underpining of it the entire time. Uh, and I didn't love the last song, Autumn's Child, which also is the longest song on the track, but nothing overstays its welcome, which is, I know, something we use quite a bit. And yeah, as, as you mentioned, a lot of the things you said are the things that I would say the production was really good. Um, and Captain Beefheart's voice is, it can sound like he's a different singer depending on the song that he's doing, which is something that I love in Frontmen to begin with. So I, I have to say, yeah, I, I love the song Abba Zabba, which kind of comes out of nowhere at track eight. Um, I also found the lyrics to be pretty funny in some of the songs, especially as the album went on. Uh, when There's Woman and Grown So Ugly in particular, where Grown So Ugly was pretty funny. And then When There's Woman was actually a pretty, or Where There's Woman, excuse me, was actually a, a, a pretty strong song lyrically too. So yep, definitely would give this thumbs up. And like you, Matt, I wasn't super familiar with Captain Beefheart. And so this was a, I wouldn't say a pleasant surprise because I went in with no idea of how I was going to feel about it. But uh, it definitely was was nice to have this week um, as as something to listen to. It was a very easy thing to listen to two or three times as well. Was, uh, was Grown So Ugly the one where he just kept going, I got out of bed and looked in the mirror, and he's just describing what he does in the morning? You got it, yes. Yeah, yeah that was pretty funny. It's like, are you going to do anything interesting? He's like, I, I brushed my teeth. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's a cover of a Robert Pete Williams song, and the Black Keys also covered that on Rubber Factory. Yes, Black Keys. That's it, that's yeah, another band. That, say that's Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And I was going to say, the Black Keys owe Definitely. some of their sound to this. Yeah, that's yes. it's. It's very Black Keysian. But that's what's... Ooh, that's... I like that term, Black Keysian. Mm -hmm. That's good. Um, no, but I like that this is... It, it doesn't... I know I've said this before. You know, I, I like albums in, that are older albums to not sound dated. I think that that just is kind of... You know, it seems a little bit more ahead of its time if it's able to not t latch on too much to the sound of what's, you know, the popular thing going on at that time. And whereas there are some songs that definitely have kind of like that 60s psychedelic rock kind of thing a little bit... Um, it's 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 done in a way that I could totally see bands today trying to recapture some of that stuff, but done in more of a modern twist. Mm -hmm. um, so I see a little bit of both of that. It's definitely 60s, but it's also definitely like garage rock. Like Black Keys is a great example. I didn't think of that till you said it, John. But that's absolutely that's absolutely uh, right. Um, so I think that that's cool. There's lots of crossover, and um, I think this is something that I could see. This is more of a timeless type of sound. I think. Um, and it's, it was a lot of fun. It was great. It's great, man. It's great to dance to, you know, my yeah. daughter was loving it. She's two, you know, so right on. Yeah. I was, I was a little apprehensive before I started listening to this because I knew, I think John had offhandedly mentioned the association with Frank Zappa. So I was expecting something really avant-garde, but I really like this album and it's I think it's one of my favorites so far I kept coming back to the songs they were really catchy I love his like growling voice and how mm -hmm. he like John said changes from can change from song to song apparently he had like a four octave range too which I don't wow. really know what that means but that's per I, that means that's, that's, that's a big impressive. range yeah yeah um I love how bluesy it is I I think of this as like 
desert acid blues like Mm -hmm. he's on drugs but he's in the desert so it's a little more mellow and you can see the influence from all of his all of his blues they the chicago blues that he had and in the southern blues and even things like just the just the very like different things like having the theremin on electricity and and the different variety of songs and how you know for i'm sorry go ahead josh i apologize i was gonna add something oh i was just gonna say even something like call of me which sounds like a rolling stone song to me almost um that i think that's the third track maybe call on me yep and um every song was like just different enough to be like a little surprise and there's always like a catchy hook or something that the first time you hear it you're like what is this and then you hear it again and it's really great like yellow brick road is so jaunty and then it drops into this dark like chorus with like a weird guitar lick that's so good and um yeah i really i really like this album now i will couch that in saying (laughs) that i don't this is everything i've read said this is his most accessible accessible album and that the next album we're going to hear is going to be really avant-garde and not like this so i will if if nothing else i like this album (laughs) so well i'll i'll give some things i was thinking of while we were saying it too i think as josh mentioned if you were talking about the stones that josh is referencing i want you to think of like heart of stone fortune teller you know covering old blues songs type stones so for those that are familiar with the stones that's a little bit of what that's the stones overlap sounds like not the let it bleed sticky finger stones i think it calls back to a little bit of an earlier bluesy sound to the stones i will tell you some bands that if you like them are a little bit in debt to this sound if you like caius or the queens of the stone age uh, you can draw a pretty straight line from how this sounds into the type of blues-driven rock just plugged in a little bit more that they make. Uh, I would also say a band like Black Rebel Motorcycle Club um, takes quite a bit of this sound as well. So if you're familiar with any of those bands, especially any of the, the Josh Homme projects, um, I think you'll... I, I would be shocked if they were not influenced both lyrically and sonically. Also, by, uh, another work. another guy who lives in the desert. So I wonder if that's yes, a common yes. thread. Mm-hmm. So there you go. I but think yep, too. I I think what uh, is is cool about this too is the avant garde aspect of it because there is some. It's uh, it's certainly not as avant garde as like the Frank Zappa album, and I could no, you know as, and other things that we might have heard of, but it's it's also done in a way that I that I tend to really gravitate towards the avant garde because it's done slightly. It's done a little bit in the background, but it's all right. couched in more of a melody and more of a of an accessible sound. And so I I think that that's really the sweet spot for me. Um, but with with songs like electricity, which parts are really kind of almost grating, but then it's but then there's this guitar part in the background that just holds on to you, right? That you can really keep you can keep up with the song, even though he's kind of his voice is kind of really going to this direction we've, that otherwise would be very off putting. We've um, listened, we've listened to three albums that I would call avant garde right now, and ironically, I wouldn't even call the Frank Zappa album we listened to avant garde because I think he was going for something different, right? It was basically a parody album later. As we'll see, he goes in different directions. But the United States of America, that Monks album, Matt, that we covered, right. the Cleaning the Attic, was definitely avant-garde. And then that Pink Floyd album. And this is avant-garde, but in a very different way than those three albums. A very different way. Um, and so in that sense, it's 
it's an avant-garde but still grounded very much in traditional music blues Absolutely. yeah definitely you know in a way that some of the other avant-garde music and certainly the uh, the music that's labeled as avant-garde in the 70s seems as if it came from a totally different sonic context so i do think it's important to mention that if you hear avant-garde and you're like oh man it's going to be you know ethereal or sort of post-rock or the type of stuff that was being done in the 70s by brian eno or roxy yeah. music it's or not like even that. kraut rock it's not like that at all it's very much moored in the blues tradition mm-hmm. so i did want to throw that out there even yeah, and- unlike the united states of america which was not moored to any of those traditions and this yeah. is much more, like Josh said, this is this is much more accessible than all those other records. You could put this on in a bar. You could put this on, you know, a, a, in a variety of places. And it's not like people are going to turn around and be like, what the hell is this? You know, it's going right. to, you know, maybe a couple of parts, but it's people will be able to, you know, get down to this, I think. Right. Yeah, I agree. I think it sounds like we're all very positive on this album. It was a, yep. a very pleasant surprise for me. If you're someone unfamiliar with it and you're looking for albums from what we cover to add into your repertoire and give a shot to, this is you could do a lot worse than giving this one a shot. All right. Did he Josh, did he I know we're gonna get into more of his stuff later on, but um mm-hmm. what was his uh was his output ex- ex- extensive? What it was did he do a lot of stuff? Did he kind of fall away? Like what do you have any sense of what the future was like for him? Well, it seems like they he made albums pretty consistently. Um the, one of the next album that we'll be talking about is his is a double album, uh, Trout Mask Replica, um, which has a crazy cover. Um, and then he made albums all through the 70s, um, and he retired after his last album in 1982. So he, uh, if you look at his discography, he has pretty, uh, he has a lot of albums. Well, cool. I'll have to, uh, I'll have to check some of them out. We're well, glad we're doing one more, but uh, mm-hmm. what would you say? It's not on Spotify, so we're going to have to get creative about how we listen to it? Yeah, not from what I saw. So gotcha. we'll discuss we'll that off air. There you go. Well, thanks, Josh. I enjoyed that segment. And uh, especially now that we're going to get to see Matt go into one of his two dual love interests, Bob Dylan right here. <laughs> oh, uh, I got more than that, Beatles, John. Though. We don't have a, 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 a Radiohead or a Beatles album, but we do have Bob Dylan album, and we're starting to go back into early Dylan. So I'm going to stop and allow the floor to be Matt's. Yes, well, right on. So we've got uh, the number 64 album on our list here in the 60s is The Times They Are Changing by Bob Dylan. It was ranked number three in 1964 and 518 overall. It represents Dylan's third studio album, and it's his first record where all of the songs were original compositions. So at the very beginning of the podcast, uh, we heard a clip from a track from this album, When the Ship Comes In, and now we're going to hear a little piece from the title track, The Times They Are Changing. Come gather round, people, wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone Or the times they are a-changing
Okay, so that was The Times They Are Changing, and boy, is that song still as uh, relevant today as it ever has been. And that's one of the great things about Bob Dylan, one of the great things about this record. Um, you know, this was, as I said, his his first album of all original compositions, and that was really not just a unique thing for Dylan, but a unique thing for folk music in general, because a lot of the folk artists in New York, um, which is where Dylan was spending a lot of his time in the early years in Greenwich Village, a lot of the folk artists were just, you know, they weren't necessarily writing their own songs. They were going back to the archives, um, you know, playing traditional folk songs, Irish songs, Celtic songs, um, old English songs, things like that. And so Dylan, when he really started branching out as a songwriter, um, particularly starting with the second album and leading into this record, that was where, really where um, he started to set himself apart from everybody else. So, um, couple details about the record it was recorded from august 6th through october 31st 1963 and it was released on january 13th 1964 this is also probably a combing the stacks uh record here this is the third record in a row that i'm covering that was produced by tom wilson um so this was the he, he produced the mothers of invention record and not knowing what he was getting into when he signed them and also the simon and garfunkel record that we did last week parsley sage rosemary and time so tom wilson came along worked with dylan a little bit on his second album and then um you know did this record plus the next two so he was uh he was kind of a staple for dylan for a couple of years so uh, Dylan during this time had been he started to gain a little bit more no, more notoriety notoriety uh, he was a little bit more well known in the folk circles he was starting to become a hero of theirs but wasn't really getting national uh, attention just yet but that started to change a little bit one story uh, that came out in uh, May of 1963 he was supposed to play on the Ed Sullivan show and he was told by CBS that his song Talkin' John Birch Paranoid Blues was a potentially libelous uh, song to be playing towards the uh, John Birch Society. And so they didn't really want him playing that, I guess. And Dylan, instead of, you know, capitulating to any type of censorship, just decided to walk out and not play at all. So uh, that that got some uh, some that was a little bit of a newsworthy action on his part. Um, he also started around this time teaming up with Joan Baez, who was another folk singer who, you know, uh, collaborated with Dylan teaming a lot. Up. Yeah, teaming up in quotes. They they teamed up in, in, in multiple ways. Josh is correct about that. Um, and but they, you know, they, they toured together and, uh, you know, she really latched on to him as kind of, uh, you know, they were both really in love with each other, but uh, probably her more so than him. Um and it got to the point where, you know, she started realizing that, you know, he's writing the songs. He doesn't really need me as much as, you know, she needed him. So, uh, you know, that started to break apart a bit. But they uh, she was really she was heavily in, uh, involved in the civil rights movement and kind of brought Dylan along with that. He did perform at the March in Washington when Martin Luther King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech in August of 1963. Um, and this album saw even more so than his previous record, the free Wheelin', Bob Dylan probably saw him getting even more politicized in his, in his uh, music. And this was also a darker record. Uh, if you go back and listen to some of Dylan's earlier stuff from his first two records and some of the, um, the cutting room floor stuff, there was a lot more humor and, um, you know, kind of tongue in cheekness in his songs. And this record's not a whole lot of humor. This is a very dark album. Um, it's not all political. Uh, you know, there, there are some songs on, but there's some songs on here that have to do with living in the depression. 
um, and there's songs in here about you know uh, love lost, right? Anti-war. So, anti and there's anti-war stuff in here too. So it's very um, there's it, it, not a lot of happy feelings going in here, um, maybe with the exception of when the ship comes in. But uh, so and then even though Dylan was becoming a huge figure in the folk movement, which was very much tied to the civil rights movement. Um, you know, he, he certainly played a lot of shows with people like Pete Seeger, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and, you know, people that were really involved heavily in the civil rights movement. And Dylan, if you read any of his, of his quotes or see any interviews, it's very interesting because he, he's claims that all, none of his songs are topical. None of his songs are political. He's just writing songs because they're reflecting something in society. But a lot of times he even says things to the effect of, I don't even know what I mean. People are always asking me, what does this mean? What am I writing about? And a lot of times I don't even know what it means. You know, you know Joan Baez. Go ahead. He, Matt, is full of shit. <laughs> well, he, I will say this. He's consistent in, in his uh, you know, ev- evasion of those types of questions. He is clearly uncomfortable talking about that stuff. And this is really where that whole voice of a generation was starting to come about more so. You know, people said quotes about him like, you know, he, you know, he was saying things that all of us were thinking but never, never could say. Um, and, you know, had he, he had his finger on the pulse of society and, and everything like that. Um, but it's, it is hard to believe that. I agree with that, John, when you're writing songs like The Times Are a Change and, and Lonesome Death, Death of Hattie Carroll and Only a Pawn in Their Game. How are those not political songs? You know, I mean, um, yes, with, these with songs God on our side, is, yeah, with, it does, there's nothing political about that song at all. No, yeah. not, I, I, how could you possibly read into that? How could we be so obtuse, Matt? Yeah, well, you know, you just need to uh, you need to expand your horizons a bit, John, I think. Um, so, yeah, so that's basically what this record is. Um, I don't think I have any other notes. I'm going to, I'll probably do a little bit more. We are going to cover the freewheeling Bob Dylan later on in the podcast. And I'll probably do a little bit more of Dylan's origins. Cause that'll be the earliest record that we do cover. Um, so what are, I know we're all familiar with Dylan, but um, what did we think of this record? John, why don't we start with you? Um, so I was pleasantly surprised so far in the podcast that the two Dylan albums that we've listened to, John Wesley Harding and especially Nashville Skyline have been albums that were a Dylan I wasn't really aware of and I really enjoyed the version of. Uh, this mm-hmm. is a Dylan I'm more aware of and this is the Dylan that I I would fall definitely I would definitely put this in the category of I can appreciate the influence and totally understand it especially of its era but this is not my Bob Dylan. Um, I will start with a compliment. This is Dylan probably at his best lyrically. He hadn't become what I think sometimes is sort of the parody version of Bob Dylan that's almost become, but that Simon and Garfunkel uh, three years later, right, were making fun of. Uh, He's not at that point yet, but he's beginning to create the type of form that becomes what gets spun off into the parody. But the lyrics are really excellent here, I have to say. Uh, with that being said, this this is the Dylan that people think of when they stereotype. The voice that sort of is folky, but every once in a while stumbles on tune, but it's mostly off tune. The songs, especially on the front end of the album, are long. Um, I certainly can't do anything but recommend it as a listen because as a historical document, it's a necessary listen for the 60s because so much spun off of it. But in terms of my personal enjoyment, this falls very much in early Bob Dylan, folk Bob Dylan, 
that I, I'll be very honest is that's a that's a tough genre for me, and so I acknowledge my biases. Uh, great lyrics, uh, lots of lots lots of lots of harmonica, and not much else. This is certainly <laughs> not plugged yet, um, or or experimenting with other instruments. So if you like songs and you like songs with harmonica and you like songs that start have harmonica start have harmonica and have lyrics that like Matt said can can walk I guess non-political but yeah he's talking about sunsets <laughs> in the wind I guess but yes if you're at all perceiving what he's writing about which he clearly is the times in 1963 1964 that era um and if you know his bio, it's clear what he's writing about. Yeah. Um, so I, I know that doesn't help, it, but it's not my personal favorite Dylan album. I'm very familiar with this album. Uh, if you love folk music, uh, you're going to love this. If you like singer-songwriters, I think you're also going to love it. Uh, and certainly you should listen to it if you are a rock fan to know one of the earliest examples of, of where rock would be going in the 60s. Uh, but... Yeah, I mean it's it's that Dylan that that is the stereotype. John, would you were there any particular songs that you might say this was on the the the, song, the side that I liked a little bit more versus ones that were like I didn't like this uh, one at all? I, my favorite two songs on this album were "Only a Pawn in Their Game" and "When the Ship Comes In." Were by far my two favorite songs. Uh, I also do like "The Times They Are a Changing" as a song. Um, I would say "Boots of Spanish Leather" and "With God on Our Side" are songs that i think that you're either gonna love those songs and say this is the essence of dylan or you're gonna look at them and say okay that's the bob dylan that's the bob dylan that is the stereotype right so that would be my layout i i do think that the beginning is a little too long and the end is a little too long but the middle of the album for me was the sweet spot so that north country blues to when the ship comes in with only boots of spanish leather being a song that I didn't like, that was my favorite part of the album. Okay. What John, about you, Josh? Oh, John, what can you remind me what type of Dylan era or genre do you do like? I or coming more it's line for you. I like mid seventies Dylan. I like when Dylan plugs in from the mid sixties on. Okay. And I've I've since learned that I apparently like late sixties country Dylan because I <laughs> enjoyed both those albums quite yeah. a bit. So thank I you, Call Me liked, Sax. Yep. So I knew I like plugged in Dylan in the six in the mid sixties, and I knew that I liked you know the late sixties Dylan. I know I love Blood on the Tracks. Uh, and in the eighties and nineties, Dylan's output was way more sporadic, but he would occasionally throw some stuff in to surprise you. But I also knew the hardest version of Dylan for me personally is folk singer Bob Dylan. But that's because I, I you know, I don't love Peter Paul and Mary. I don't love Joan Baez. You know, like I, it's just not my genre, and it. Even compared to something like Fairport Convention that came later, which had a little bit more going on, this is this is a very straight version of folk that I do feel like you either like or you don't like. Hmm. Got it. Well, I am. Hmm. I'm a little mixed on this album. I think individually these songs are all really great, but as an album, it felt a little long to me, and it didn't every song kind of started to blend into each other. Um, I, I really like, I really like how Dylan is a storyteller on this album and how each of the songs tells like this, this little complete story that you have to listen to and you can get the whole beginning of the end. 
uh, even with the long songs like with God on our side it it's all fairly it's straightforward and and the lyrics are really powerful and and songs like Ballad of Hollis Brown and Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll like you know they talk about um, injustice among um, people and they reference he references Medgar Evers too and I really like all of the the messages that he's trying to get across and the stories that he's telling but I can't see myself listening to this album as a whole again if that makes sense like I could pick out any of these songs and enjoy them or if if, if Dylan was on shuffle and and these songs came up I would enjoy it but I don't know how so he needs oh, a CCR chronicle for Bob Dylan. Is yeah, that, <laughs> to put him on there. Yeah, he, he does maybe. have the greatest hits, Josh. Yeah, I mean, I can just make my own playlist if I want to. But um, right. But you guys, do you guys see what I'm saying? Like, it it just kind of runs together a little bit for me on this album, even though I enjoyed the songs when I was listening to them. Well, I think too, it's probably one of those things where um, if it's not your thing, if it's not your genre. Um, it, it can seem like a long album because there's no, ver- there's not a whole lot of variation, you know, right. John, John or Josh, when you were talking about the personnel on the captain Beefheart album, right. You're listening off all these people, all these instruments. This is Bob Dylan, guitar, right. harmonica, piano. That's it. Yeah, right. That's it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what this is. This is stripped down Dylan. This is what, this is what really uh, got him started. This is what people loved about him, and this is why people hated him so much when he went electric. Because it's when we get to those albums, they're totally different. Um, so I think that that makes sense. I don't think that that's you know out of, out of place. Um, you know, you gotta you gotta want to listen to something like this. I think to enjoy it. Right. It's a very defined structure at this point in Dylan's career, and he toyed around with the structure a little bit later in his career. Um, but this is gonna you know not just the instruments, but the exact amount of time he's going to sing before he gets to an exact harmonica part. You know, each song, depending on where it is, it's a very structured way of creating a song. It just sometimes lengthens out that same structure, which is not necessarily an indictment, but that's what folk music was, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And like you said, Matt, I think maybe it also has to do with the fact that overall the songs are all very dark. There's no variety in terms of like, I wouldn't mind. I don't mind him on just guitar and harmonica, but if he can use that in like a, a more positive or jaunty as a word I'm using tonight, <laughs> come back to that. Um, it's a good know, word. He could put that, he could put a couple of uh, upbeat songs. You want some more bangers, well. some yeah, Dylan bangers. Uh, yeah. Some toe tapping, um, Bob Dylan. So maybe that's it too. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, some more full- bops, some Bob Dylan bops. Is yeah. that what you're looking for? <laughs> yeah. So full bias out here. I love this album. I love Bob Dylan. Um, I knew, I did not know all the songs on this. I, this was not a record that I had uh, growing up, but I knew maybe half the songs, um, either from like the greatest hits or from uh, the live albums that I had, because Dylan, there's an extensive catalog that they've been working on for a while now, the Bootleg series, which is just a series of different live concerts, uh, you know, uh, cutting room floor stuff, uh, B-sides that were never released, things like that. Um, but I, I get why people don't like Dylan or don't really appreciate his voice. I love it. When I hear this, this is, you know, and I'm not a huge folk 
I wouldn't say that I'm a huge folk fan. I do like folk a lot, but it's it's not like it's not my first love, I guess you would say. But I just I love Dylan's voice. I love the way he plays the harmonica. Um, there's some songs on here that just still get me. The times are changing. That might be the song that I've known the longest of Dylan's, mm-hmm. and the song that I've liked the longest. That song has never gotten old for me. Every time I hear that song, it's just oh, it's so good. Um, you know, and uh, it, it's it, I just I I don't think that I have ever really come off of that you know i don't always want to listen to dylan i don't always want to you know go down this road but when i do i just i'm always reminded of how great he is um even i'm not a lyrics guy but i appreciate you know the lyrics and something like with god on our side or really anything from this it's just it's so it was so effortless for him to write this stuff you know the the story of when the ship comes in he was going into a he was uh, going to a hotel with joan Baez, and uh he he was looking a little disheveled which he did oftentimes during this time of his career. And the, uh, the hotel clerk didn't want to let him in and Joan Baez got all mad and stuff. And she finally like forced, forced him, uh, forced her way into getting a room for him. And he was so, he was upset by it, the way that he was treated. And then he was like, yeah, well, I'm just going to go write the song. And he writes when the ship came in in like a half hour or whatever that oh night, you know, just, you know, just bu- busted it out. And, and that's the stuff that he did. He just got inspired and he was just on this tear of writing songs because it was so new to him. It was so different. And he knew what he was doing. He knew that he was doing new stuff, that he, there weren't a lot of folk artists that were writing their own stuff like him. Um, and, uh, and he had just such, such confidence, you know. Um, and you can really hear it on this. Then this is this is probably his last record, this last full attempt at doing something more. Even though he would disagree with the terms topical and political, but that's very much what this is. And this is and at the end of this, by the time that this album came out, he was really starting to move away from that and wanted kind of you know was was pulling away from the civil rights movement and things like that. So it's kind of interesting because. You know, the two albums we've covered, John Wesley Harding and Nashville Skyline, for those that are remembering. And then we I mentioned Blood on the Tracks, right? Blood on the Tracks about his divorce very clearly and the, the songs very clearly line up. Nashville Skyline had a pretty clear idea of what he was writing about. A certain part of America, John Wesley Harding was, was a bunch of character sketches, right? I think, I like Josh said, I was surprised that an album called The Times They Are Changing was not as coherent in terms of the narrative, but I don't know if that's what he's going for. And I was descri- <laughs> I was also describing to a friend, he's like, you know, what, what was, tell me a little bit about that Dylan album, because I know Dylan a little bit. I said, this was the era where like everything that Bob Dylan's writing about, you can imagine him talking about it to someone like, you know, like, Bob, what are you thinking? Eh, with God on our side, you know, and like everything's sort of an outgrowth of his words. Whereas later it was a lot more mysticism. Cause when I think of most of Bob Dylan's career, I think of religious allegories and he's always tying it into some sort of, and he oftentimes even uses that to describe his lyrics, right? Even when people think they get it, it's like, well, there's an element of it that's spiritual. Um, but there's a lot less of that here. Even even in a song like With God on Our Side, it's not as present. Um, so it was interesting to me to see his lyrics more defined. And, and as I said earlier, I think that's the best part of this album because he hadn't become the, the Dylan that almost went out of his way to become more obtuse that, you know, like Dewey Cox was, you know, making fun of later, you know, <laughs> with the, you know, the bizarre allegories and yeah. the, the word play, like that's, that's not here. And actually I prefer this version lyrically of Dylan, even if I do not prefer the arrangement slash, you know, 
you know, times they are changing, you know, version of his singing, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no ambiguity on this album. It's very straightforward. No. Yeah. Um, and I, I appreciate that, and I have no problem with his, his voice either. Um, I, that's not something I've ever, um, been bothered by. I am interested to see what the change to electric is like. I mean, I knew he changed to electric and I've seen a bunch of Bob Dylan documentaries and stuff, but I will interesting to see how that plays into the chronology, you know, when we discuss that album and, and see what a change pretty, it is from the, from album to album. I'm pretty sure I can summarize that ahead of time for our listeners. Matt's going to stay still really good. And I'm going to say better. And that, <laughs> so I would probably say, I would probably yeah. say better too, but I, I still yeah. love this, you know, and I, you know, there's, there's times where I really would much rather listen to this than the electric Bob Dylan, just depending on my mood. Um, but I think that he's, I agree. This is a much more straightforward record compared lyrically to something like blonde on blonde. It's like, it's, it's beautiful. Like I can tell like, man, he's got the, the images that he's coming up with and just putting it all together is amazing. But what the heck is it? Go, what's going on here? You know, this is much more straightforward. Um, and it's, it's very powerful, you know, with God on our side as a, it's yeah. a very powerful song. You know, the, all the political songs on here are just, Jesus. you know, He's more Woody Guthrie here than he is beat poet. Maybe that's a great way to put it, Matt. Mm. Because like when you're talking about the blonde on blonde, the people who love the lyrics, that's the beat poet style of lyric, right? And that's for a lot of people very profound and for other people kind of a caricature. Yeah, well, this, this doesn't sound like that at all. This is like Woody Guthrie straightforward songs. Yeah, like so. uh, uh, working class disenfranchised people, um, definitely salt of the earth type of of songs well and that was who his you know who his idol was you know when he came to new york that was he went to go visit woody guthrie in the hospital and that was the cool thing too at the time like woody guthrie you couldn't find his records you know like he he was just this mysterious guy that you would just see you know you'd hear a song here or there and you're like what is this and he was very much um influenced by him and he certainly pat you know took on the torch of uh of woody guthrie but then yes john he did start hanging out with like you know alan ginsburg and the beats yep. and stuff like that and, and that was certainly influential for him you know a few years well, later and, and he still would keep those salt of the earth stories he would just put them into that context uh, john wesley harding's a perfect example mm-hmm. if you look at the lyrics it's a bunch of character sketches about people from a certain part of the country who are sort of hard scrabble or mythological figures which is right out of the handbook of the beats and of course it's it, he like you said alan ginsburg is kind of where he goes whereas jim morrison is more rod McEwen and you know those folks you know but that it's all yeah. wraps together a little bit in less linear and more mystical and abstract in terms of it that that is not what this album is and i think that might be why i appreciate it a little bit more mm-hmm. matt how was it how was this album received um you know sales wise and Oh, critically it, and it, i don't sales wise I, I don't have that the numbers offhand but it was very popular i mean the, the 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 by this time in the folk circles people loved him and he was starting to get more notoriety people were starting to you know um he was starting to bring folk a little bit more to the mainstream um you know at the around this time but at the same time at the kind of the height of his um you know the folk part of bob dylan he was starting again he was now i'm going to start moving away from that you know um so it was pretty well received um and if there was a rolling stone i'm pretty sure it would have ranked at number one for the year man probably Um, and and it probably would have given the ideas that bruce springsteen had as a child as the number two album of 1964 i believe would have been the top two choices. well those are those are really good ideas though i mean you have to admit um 
But I think just to, in wrapping up a couple of other things here, you could, the the lyrics, uh, the the handwritten lyrics of this of the times are changing were sold at auction, at auction in New York in 2010 for four hundred and twenty two thousand dollars. So yeah. Um, what do you what do you do with that? Do you just display it in, in frame the main it. foyer? Do you keep you it post in. it on your Instagram and and show people how cool you are? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, where's that Instagram account? Or I could take a picture of it and then post it on my Instagram, and I could be just as cool. They're probably locked in a safe somewhere, realistically. Yeah. Do you do you think you buy that and you feel self satisfied and you hang it up and you go, hmm, that's what I I got, huh? I think you buy that because you have fu money and you have nothing else better to do. So of course, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I hope Um, it descends into a little vault at the end of the night in the person's house for safekeeping. Maybe they do it like after, uh, you know, after they hit the, you know, the record hitting home run and you give the ball to McGuire, you know, maybe he gave the, maybe the, Dylan got the lyrics back. Who knows? A um, couple other things. The, the line from With God on Our Side, where he talks about um, whether Judas Iscariot had God on his side, mm-hmm. inspired Tim Rice to write the lyrics of Jesus Christ Superstar from Judas's perspective. Oh, interesting. So he has, he has got some theater uh, cred there. And also, even though we mentioned, I mentioned earlier that this was the first uh, Dylan album that had all originals, there was some controversy with because the melody of with, of with God on Our Side is pretty much identical to a traditional Irish folk song called The Merry Month of May, which was also used by, a, by an artist named Dominic Behan in his song The Patriot Game. And the opening verse is also very similar. So uh, Behan kind of publicly criticized Dylan saying that he was this was not an original composition. Um, and, and he also later took the view that, Dil- that because of this, Dylan's b- entire body of work must be questioned. Because if you do it once, you know, you must be doing it other times as well. Um, Dylan never really responded to that because... I don't know, he probably he probably didn't need to. Yeah. And then finally, the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll was based on a true story, and a lot of the a lot of the stuff that he's talking about in that song actually did happen. And I was interested to learn a little bit about the guy William Zanzinger who murdered, uh, essentially murdered uh, Hattie Carroll. Uh, he did he did uh, six months in jail for the crime. It was actually manslaughter, and the song Dylan says it was first degree murder, but the charge was actually manslaughter. And the six month sentence was just short enough to prevent him from going to a federal penitentiary so he so he got to only you know do do light time i guess you could say um and later on he talked about the song saying um that quote it was a total lie and it actually had no effect upon my life and he uh but he did express scorn for dylan saying quote he's a no account son of a bitch he's just like a scum of a scumbag of the earth i should have sued him and put him in jail um so uh it's yeah, almost those so he, folk singers that are so intense, aren't they? Well, I don't know if Zantzinger was a was a, uh, was a <laughs> he was the person that killed. He was them. the murderer. He was. <laughs> I don't think he was a folk singer. I think he was a. Uh, I think he I think probably he had a folk a, career on the side, right? You know, probably, he might have been more of a probably, country dude. I always hear that Bob Dylan inspired so many people. You know what I mean? Perhaps he just subtly inspired. He inspired, inspired the Bob murder. Dylan. Yeah. Yes. That sounds about right. So yeah, so that's still we're gonna hey fear not uh, fear not we're gonna be covering Bob Dylan many 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 more times so uh, we'll 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 go more into the history and the future of Dylan and later episodes. Well, you know who we're not gonna be covering any more times? Who's that, Nico. John? We're not gonna be covering <laughs> Nico anymore. So I might jump in right here if that's okay, Matt. Do it. This is editor Josh here. Just noticing 
when cutting the episode together that John failed to mention what songs he had introduced for the Nico segment. And in the opening montage, you heard Chelsea Girls. And right now you're going to hear These Days. So let me ask you guys a question. How much bio do you want? Because I've been on a pretty darn good run right now of very interesting people that I've covered recently. Sly Stone, uh, James Brown. <laughs> you know, It's like a who's who of interesting bios from the 60s. But I will say that Nico is probably the most varied and interesting bio that I've covered. And I would dare say maybe even we've covered in general right now for the 60s. Uh, well, with, so I can give you tease, lots of bio. Yes, please give us <laughs> a little. So I want, I, I want medium bio, John. You I want, want the Goldilocks okay. bio. I'll give you a medium bio. Okay, so I think when, when most people who are music fans think of Nico, they think of her work on the Velvet Underground's seminal album, Velvet Underground and Nico, in yes, which she sang that's four what I songs. Think yep. yep. And that was her output in the 1960s was this album we're covering, Chelsea Girl and uh, Velvet Underground and Nico. And they were actually both released in 1967. So those are the two pieces. Nico would record a few more albums in the 70s, a little bit in the 80s, and she would die young in a biking accident. So Josh, make sure that you tell Emily in her bike safety classes that when you're driving into town to get your marijuana, that you make sure that you wear your helmet because yes, that was that's... how she unfortunately perished. Yeah, that's why you always wear a helmet. That is why you always wear a helmet, yes. But uh, Nico, much much like in life, Nico was not one for rules, as we will find out quite a bit. It's also why you drive to get your marijuana. You don't get on your bike to get your marijuana. <laughs> or have Jeez. someone deliver it to you. When you, when you imagine yourself as a, a bohemian in the tradition of bohemian artists of of your, which Nico did, um, you don't really drive anywhere, you know? And so, all right, so where, where do we even start with Nico? Um, I, I think the first thing to know about her is that Nico is as much known for being an iconic image in many different ways as she is as being a musician. And part of the reason for that is she was a model in her teens. She was five foot 10, pale skin, very chiseled features, uh, pretty much consistently... Uh, viewed as beautiful in sort of an icy, detached way. Every word you can possibly use to talk about a woman in the context of art has been applied to her. You know, when she was young, she was an ingenue to like Serge Gainsbourg and, you know, different different French film artists. She was in a Fellini movie in 1960, uh, a chanteuse. So for the Velvet Underground, Andy Warhol picked her to be the chanteuse for the Velvet Underground. The Chanteuse basically being the female troubadour, so to speak, in front of a group. She was supposed to be the beauty behind the beast that were the Velvet Underground. Uh, she's often called a muse. Later in life, you know, she takes on the role of being the the self-actualized feminist. Uh, she is highly influential on the gothic movement. So she was kind of a little bit of everything to everybody while herself admitting that she was not a person to ever put out or have a deep 
um, understanding of who she was. She sort of viewed herself in the way that you would think of as an existentialist, living in the moment and living to the next moment. Um, there are quite a few quotes, including one that I just put on Twitter uh, earlier today. In She lived in a different uh, country for every decade of her life, and she lived five decades. Um, and she had quite a life. So let me let me give you a little bit of the bullet points in terms of what it is. First of all, it is Nico and not Nico or Neko, as people will say. Uh, she was German. She was born in 1938 with the name Krista Pafkin. The name Nico comes uh, from uh, the photographer that discovered her, Herbert Tobias, was in love with a man named Nikos Papatakis, uh, who actually was having an affair with Nico as a teenage model. And he decided to name her Nico in tribute to uh, Papatakis, and it sticks for the entire rest of her life. Her father was in the SS, and we're not 100% sure what happens, but we know that he does die in the war. How he dies is never quite clear. Uh, she is, uh, but she is widowed, or excuse me, not widowed. Uh, she is left fatherless young. Her father came from a pretty affluent background. Her mother came from a lower class background. Uh, and so Nico drops out of school at 13 and begins working in a department store in which she's discovered as a model shortly afterwards. Wait, I'm sorry. So was, mm -hmm. did she not know how her da dad died or did she know but just never so talked about Nico, it? Nico was notorious for putting out a, a mythology around her persona. It was part of why Andy Warhol loved her so much. It was part of just what she was, right? That that woman who was always detached, you know, people described her as like a walking icicle or detached. She had that sort of detached sex appeal that was very appealing, especially to men in the arts. Um, and mm. that was kind of her thing. She was as much, and I don't want to under underestimate her musical output, but she, you cannot talk about her without talking about the image she projected because so much of, of her career is in the context of image, whether it's as a model, an actress, why she was put in front of the Velvet Underground, and later, you know, what she would sing about, including on this album. So very long story short, modeling leads to acting. She actually studies under Lee Strasberg, who's known for the Strasberg method. Josh, I'm sure you could talk about that a little bit more, right? Yes. Yep. So, um, but she was classically trained in that sense. So she ends up in Fellini's La Dolce Vita, and she ends up in many other movies, including Andy Warhol's Chelsea Girls uh, in 1967, which this album, Chelsea Girl, which we're covering today, was conceived as sort of a companion piece for. Um, she had a very highly publicized life in the 60s. It, you, If you were a man in the music world or in the art world of any standing, your orbit crossed with Nico, and most likely you also were her lover at some point or another. Um, and I do not – I don't mean that negatively, She, but she would be the first – one of the reasons that Nico has gained a second appreciation in the modern context is is for a a certain type of sex positive feminist, right? Nico is looked at as ahead of her times because she was unabashedly sexual, but sort of kind of the view was on her own terms. Um, unfortunately, she later in life sort of credited some of this detachment in her sexuality to the fact that she was raped by a serviceman, a U.S. serviceman at age 15. Mm -hmm. um, which she said had a 
and afterwards became highly sexualized in the modeling world. So those combination of those two things when it was not, I mean, let's be honest, in the, in the mid to late 60s into the early 70s, it was the worst kept secret in the world was that most of the groupies around rock bands were between the ages of 13 and 18 years old. And, um, you know, Nico was in that modeling world in that life, right? Um, it also led to some interesting things. You know, her father was a member of the SS, so her views on... Uh, Jews were always complicated. Some would say anti-Semitic. Others would say she had her moments. Her views on uh, uh, black uh, Americans in particular were complicated. The man who raped her was a black American serviceman, which is where she attributes some of that loathing to. But she had a pretty long and controversial series of public statements about uh, black men in particular in the 70s, which led to sort of her becoming a pariah for a while in the 70s. Uh, but I mean, at, at different times, she's, you know, uh, J she's spending time with Jim Morrison, you know, she's in the Velvet Underground, and she has a, a romantic relationship with each member of the Velvet Underground. Um, she that must have been awkward. It was. It was, and it did not end well for the Velvet Underground because of that. In fact, much of why the Velvet Underground were a quick crash and burn is attributed to her and her complex relationship with Lou Reed in particular. She was um, there, Yoko. Yes, but yes, I hate to be a. Um, I hate to be. Uh, she was more like an Anita Pallenberg for the Stones than she was a Yoko, Matt. If that makes sense. I don't know who um, that is. <laughs> that is the woman who was. And ironically enough, Nico's great love was Brian Jones of the Stones. But where Anita Pallenberg comes in is that Anita Pallenberg was married uh, to Brian Jones and left him for Keith Richards while both were in the Stones, which was attributed <laughs> to his I didn't know that. breakdown. Yes. So not to get gossip pagey, but part of what Nico was in the 60s and 70s was the idea that she was around all of these these pow these creative men she was a muse for so many men her songs were mostly written by men from sort of a woman singing about a, ma a male perspective idea so it's 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 it may be unpopular to say but that's a large part of of who she is the, the sex appeal and in that sense she's very much like a lot of male artists that were highly sexualized in the 60s right you know mick jagger uh Robert Plant, Iggy Pop, all of whom she had relationships with. Um, notably also, she at the time she was recording this album, this does tie in, so not to continue to harp on that, but the lead guitarist on this album was Jackson Brown, who was her lover at the time of recording this album, a young Jackson Brown. So when you hear the guitar on this album, she uh, it's Jackson Brown playing it. I I mean I can keep going. She she played in a band while she was in the Velvet Underground that had members of the Velvet Underground: Jackson Brown, Tim Buckley, a whole bunch of famous blues musicians. The shows were considered to be pretty brutal um, because Nico was sort of finding her way. I think as a singer, um, and then she she spends time with Jim Morrison uh, while he was on a break. Yeah, and during that time they do a ton of drugs and he encourages her to write her own stuff and so half of this album is her writing her own stuff and half of it is the velvet underground writing stuff for her and actually bob dylan wrote a song for her uh on this album too that was originally conceived in 1964 ironically enough because the album we talked about today was there when she was apparently vacationing with bob dylan and it was largely thought that she had a brief fling with him uh that the song uh was about 
Uh, so that's Nico. Uh, in terms of the notes on the album, it was released in October 1967. And you won't believe who it's produced by, guys. Tom Wilson. Good oh old Tom Wilson. Goodness. Yep, another Tom Wilson album. Uh, that guy wrote, must be raking in with the royalties. Holy! I crap. know he was he was he was like Carol King as a songwriter as a producer, right? So she wrote most of the songs on this album, but four of them were written by various combinations of the Velvet Underground. Um, for those that don't know the Velvet Underground, the primary songwriters were Lou Reed and John Cale. Uh, and then I'll keep it with mine is a Bob Dylan song that he gave to her as a gift. Why he gave it to her as a gift, you can probably figure it out. Um, it is considered to be in the genre of chamber folk and 1960s pop. It notably does not have drums or bass, but has strings and flutes and a keyboard, which is normally played by either a member of the Velvet Underground, who was in the studio, or Jackson Brown, as well as one guitar that was played by either a member of the Velvet Underground or Jackson Brown as well. Uh, Nico notoriously did not like this album because she asked for drums and they did not provide it. She asked for uh, a minimal production and then she got a ton of strings. And what she hated more than anything was flutes, which there are tons of flutes <laughs> on, <laughs> and she hated them. So was the guy was the Jethro barely... Tull guy playing on this? The Aqualung guy? Did she, he get did he get she, laid too? No, but she um, she notoriously and and very publicly said that she hated this album because it didn't have drums the guitars were were not as aggressive as she would have wanted it and there were just too many damn flutes was basically her quote um and so <laughs> with that being said this was an album that in its time was considered to be i guess what we call an indie darling now and has now grown into sort of a seminal work of the 60s especially amongst uh, female singer-songwriters. Uh, you can tie her into the goth movement because, uh, uh, because of the fact that so many of them were large fans of her. Uh, Bajas, The Cure, uh, uh, Susie and the Banshees. Basically, everybody who's anybody in, in, uh, in goth rock was uh, a Peter Murphy who was in Bajas. Uh, all of them were big fans of her. So that is a little bit of the background on this album. I apologize for going so long, but you, you really can't think of Nico without thinking her of, as her as like Andy Warhol's um, muse in music. Yeah. Uh, and also her front, basically her being the commercial product at the front of the Velvet Underground on their most well-known album, which is also one of the most... Um, uh, one of the albums that influenced the most amount of musicians, especially in the 70s and 80s, um, and actually all the way into the 2000s with bands like The Strokes. So, all right, I'm going to shut up for a while. Matt, what would you think of this album? All right, so if I had any interest in uh, trying to garnish some uh, cred with the hipster crowd, I would tell you how moving and brilliant this album is. But that's not the case, and I'm just going to tell you how I really feel, and that's that this album sucked. Oh. I did not like this album at oh. all. This Harsh. was not this dude. This was okay. I the, the few positive things. I I I liked the guitar. Uh, the um like the production with the guitar, it, the, whatever they had, it, which was pretty much the same thing I think throughout the entire record. Whatever whatever um. I don't know lever they had on the keyboard uh, the amp. strings flutes guitar. That well, was, the, no, but it was the guitar mostly that I'm talking about, like the finger-picking guitar, something like that you hear mostly throughout something like these days. I did like that. Um, you know, I, the strings in and of themselves didn't bother me. The that big, would be my, Jackson Brown, by the way, playing those guitar parts just for yes. FYI for you. 
Yeah. So my biggest issue is her voice. I, I, it's just, it's awful. I, 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 it was, it was plotting. It was, it was uninspiring. It was just boring. And it just wasn't, there's not much, the, the melody here is not very, it's very sparse. Um, the songs that I disliked the most were the Velvet Underground songs, the John Cale, Lou Reed songs. The ones that I thought, oh, I, this one's okay, it's not, it's not too bad, were the Jackson Brown and Bob Dylan songs. Um, and I didn't realize that till afterwards. But this was just a very, I, 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 as as I was listening to it, the, as it went on, um, it would just got more and more difficult to listen to. And I just, I'm like, I don't know what I'm missing here. Um, and I think it's mainly her voice, which is just. It's 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 like she's strung out on heroin and she's just like it's just it's very boring to me. I did not like this at all. Gotcha. And interestingly enough, before we go to Josh, Nico did struggle with heroin for most of her life, but she says she did not pick up that habit until 1973, and she was actually completely clean from heroin during the entire 60s and early 70s. Well, so maybe she got a little osmosis from the Velvet Underground or something here, because I'm hearing a lot of that in 1967. Yep. Okay, Josh, what do you think? I Overall, I did not like this album either. Um, I did like some of the songs on it, but my main gripe, is the same as Matt's and, and that her voice was too droning and there wasn't really a lot of range in it. And it didn't, it, it didn't even sound like she was singing some of the times it was like, she was like talking and that was the main detraction on this album for me. I tended to actually like the arrangements and the, in the music in the background. And I did like the violins. There is a lot of flute on here. I could, I could leave that, um, with the Renaissance fair stuff, but, but overall I found that I didn't like some of the songs. I think the best song on this album is these days. And I like that because it's in the Royal Tenenbaums movie. And, and he I loves didn't... her by the way, uh, just FYI, oh, Wes Anderson? it's one of his favorite musicians. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Um, She's got that appeal for him. And uh, did he sleep with her? <laughs> no. When he was twelve, if, yeah. if he had been around, he would have. Let's put it that way. Like, but he was too late, unfortunately, to that party. Um, I I liked it was a pleasure then as well that song and and wrap your troubles in dreams. I think those are the highlights for me. Um, I really did not like winter song and and the song that sounded. I think it was where what song is it maybe somewhere there's a feather i'm not sure i like that song um but yeah it's hard it it almost seems like john based on what you said that like she didn't even really want to make this album or at least it what it didn't turn out the way she wanted it tied into like all these people it tied into like her detached personality right it's kind of like did she want to make it did she not want to make it did she care how it was received did she not that was kind of the essence of nico right that was she was everything and nothing at the same time and that's i think what the appeal is for folks yeah Uh, she's the first detached hipster then then uh it it didn't help on this she was a a scene so this out like let me start by saying I detested this album. Like, I really hate it. It's probably the, my least favorite album we've listened to. It's remarkably disappointing, though, because the lyrics to this album are fan-freaking-tastic. It's like a, 
almost a 10 of 10 in terms of the lyrics and the songs themselves. And so I'm listening to these great songs, like, and they really are. They're tremendous songs because it's just, there's all of these great songwriters. As Matt mentioned, there's Bob Dylan, there's Jackson Brown, there's the members of the Velvet Underground. I mean, all these people can write songs and they all clearly were inspired by her or stuff around her. So you're, you're reading the lyrics, you're hearing these lyrics and they're great. But then you get the same boring, monotonous arrangement over and over again with these heavy-handed mm -hmm. strings and the flute, and there's no rhythm section at all. There's no drum, there's no bass, there's no rhythm guitar, nothing. And so it's this, it's somehow both a sparse arrangement musically, but also overindulgent in terms of overpowering what's going on. I think the idea is that you then put Nico's flat voice to balance it. But as Josh and Matt have both said, there's no variation of the voice. It's not a particularly pleasing voice to begin with. It's not an expressive voice like, yeah, say, definitely. people that she influenced like Bjork or... Um, I'm trying to think of just different people, you know, like there's Bjork, you know, has that quirky voice, but there's a lot of emotion and even like Patti Smith, there's more there. This is just sort of like a flatline voice underneath it. And all I could think is, God, if you put these songs in the hands of like PJ Harvey or somebody, they'd be just incredible freaking songs. If somebody plugged in a guitar and you had these express, even like, um, Suzanne Vega, if you want to go in a different direction, if you want it, or Kate Bush, you mm -hmm. wanted somebody who did a little bit more with it. They just, these songs were just so wasted on the arrangements and they were so wasted on the flatness of the voice. And so I think the reason I really hated this album was because it, it was, it had the potential to be what people say it is, this seminal work, but it was just it was the wrong person with the wrong thing. I just think you had to be there to get what Nico's appeal was because standing, you know, 35 years later where there's been a whole evolution of empowered women and we've heard different sounds and stuff. I can imagine at the time there was no one who was who she was because there wasn't. But now we've had people that have taken on that persona, whether it be in pop music, like a a Madonna, you know, in modern times, a Lady Gaga, you know, uh, you know, and then in, in rock, there were people that took on the persona of empowered women or detached women, but, but kind of did the act better. So I guess I give her credit for being first, but, um, and I could definitely see where it's influential, especially to artists because it, it stretches the bounds, but oof. This was not it, it just and also the um, at the risk of of sounding somewhat nativist, the German accent um, to some of these songs just does not do it any yeah. favors. Yeah. yeah, it just it just it makes it harder to hear the lyrics while she's also singing as directly as possible. So you'd want the songs to be direct <laughs> and they're being sung direct, but they're being sung direct in, but with a German accent, that's not making it easy to access the words at times. So it even takes away from the directness of the singing. So it would almost be better if she had sung the songs in German, to be quite honest. I so just wonder if like the production is trying to like cover up the fact that she can't 
really sing that well. But how is that happening? It's very easy to tell she can't sing. There's nothing (laughs) covering that up. It's right out in front of you. I think it's designed like how the Velvet Underground, it was designed though to be a contrast, right? Just like the beauty of Nico in front of like the, whatever the, you know, sleaziness of the Velvet Underground as Andy Warhol saw. This was supposed to be these sweeping strings and flutes and later she'd played the harmonium, you know, for a similar kind of effect. Not on this album, but on other ones. That's kind of what she became known for. But I think it was designed to be a contrast, right? Her sort of voice colliding with these lush landscapes. And I get what you're going for, but it just did not work for me at, yeah. at, in any way. Yeah, I would say, too, that this kind of going back to what we were talking about, what you were saying about Dylan, Josh, is that like that's the, this the run of the songs, like the sound, mm-hmm. it might be OK here or there. And I think maybe like with the first two tracks in particular, they might be the ones that I enjoyed the most. And, yeah. and I was like, OK, it's I, I'm not in love with them. I did know these days um, from the move from that uh, the Royal Tenenbaums um, as well. So they it weren't too bad. But just as it went on. It, just, it got worse. And by the time you got to, like, it, it was a pleasure then. I was thinking this has got some kind of weird, there was a little bit of a distorted guitar and a little yeah. bit more of an avant-garde thing going on in there. I'm like, all right, this might be, maybe they'll bust something out here. And, of course, they don't. And it just kind of, it that, those sounds kind of hang and they kind of come in and out. And then by the time you get to Chelsea Girls, which is it's these two long songs, eight minutes, seven minutes long, and it's just... It's that They're song. Chelsea Girls. Lyrically, though. They're great I don't care. Lyrically. I don't care. It's, it's, I don't, like, great. That's awesome. But when, if I'm listening to a piece of music and when, when, when I hear a song for the first time, like Chelsea Girls, and it sticks in my head afterwards for so it long, sure and yep. it's so uninvited. I did not want that in well, there. And it was in there for so long. And I'm like, it's, it's, it's terrible. Oh. It's funny because as you're saying that, it's because it's repetitive and it keeps going back into the same course. So, like, in my yeah. head, like, all I could hear is like, so you've yeah. got that sort of like Chelsea girl, shoot me now. Yeah, and it's like um, it is haunting, but it, none of the ways you want a song to be haunting, you know. And so, um, is she even yeah, trying? I, it's like yeah, that's the that, thing. It doesn't even seem like she's trying. Uh, like, yeah. why and, am and I that's here? What I think people always try yeah. to, and, and, and I, like I said. All I can think about is if you give it to somebody like Robert Smith, you know, these songs, and it's like, wow, they'd be fantastic and expressive. I I know Morrissey loves Nico. I thought about, like, what it would be like for him singing some of these, and it would be way better, you know? Like, especially Little Sister sounds like it's a song Morrissey would have written as a solo artist. Um, And like I said, or you could plug it in and, and, like, God, it's like when I hear a song like Winter Song, it's like... All it would have taken was PJ Harvey with this song, and she would have just destroyed this song, and it would have been awesome. But instead, it's, yeah, like you guys said, it's like, can we go back? It's, ah, uh, it's like these lyrics are wasted. It just really frustrated me. So, so but if you see the, if you see the reviews, there's like terms like it's brilliant, it's a masterpiece, it's getting like five stars and nine stars. It's like, what are we missing? Like, what is, what is going on here? It's, because it's what, it's what Nico was. It's the, it's the whole package, Matt. You know what I mean? It's, that's what it is. Cause it, it's what she represented in the era that she represented it. And, and yeah. on top of it, throw her into the general mythology of the Velvet Underground. And yeah. we've talked about that quote that was made about 
the Velvet Underground only sold so many albums, but they all went 30,000 albums, I think the quote was, but they went on to all start a band, and that's what it was. And you throw in Andy Warhol, you throw in, throw in the fact that look at how much people love celebrity lives now and celebrity sex lives, and in a certain corner of the music press and you know, the hipster era, like Nico was the ultimate it girl, right? You know, she could have any man she wanted, but you couldn't know her. She was always interesting. Yeah, she was like, a, she was like a visual piece of art in some ways. Well, can um, you imagine, can you imagine what, what the response would have been like had this been like a really good record with all that other stuff? There would have been like a supernova or something like that. But it and like wouldn't people have been, would've... but it wouldn't have been what this is because the whole idea of why she's Nico is because you read an album like this if it becomes a huge hit you don't have that not even a huge hit but just like yeah i don't know i i I get all the mystique and everything like like are the velvet underground the velvet underground without being sort of that you don't know what they are but at least i've heard some velvet underground stuff and i'm like that's cool you know like that's you know in in and that's what i'm saying here I, i just find that 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 mystique and all that stuff that you're talking about with her john in terms of you know how her effect on people and this aura and, and the muse and all that stuff that must it just speaks to how powerful that must have really been like on some different level because at least people like madonna lady gaga other people that have like I don't know, any type of mystique around them. There's music that are like, okay, I get why people would like this. Even if it's not your thing, it's like, I understand why they would like that. Like, even with somebody PJ Harvey, who's more a little bit more of an avant-garde, kind of harder, she's not like a pop figure, but, or Bjork, it's like, okay, there's interesting stuff going on here. Some of it might be catchy. Some of it's groundbreaking. This is just boring and plodding. And I, I don't yeah. know where, where the enjoyment comes from. Lyrically, maybe. But if it's a piece of music, you got to have the music there, don't you? I agree. And that's why I, I was so frustrated because it, unlike you said, like unlike the Velvet Underground, where you don't always love everything, but you can appreciate it. It just, the it's the opposite of that Captain Beefheart album that had all the variety that we talked about. Yeah. It, this yeah. is just one note over and over again at different lengths. And, and that's why I spent so much time on the bio, because to understand the influence, you have to understand the whole package of what Nico is. And it's, you mentioned Madonna. It's, the question is like, if you're Madonna is Madonna because of the image and the effect, but she also was Madonna because of the songs, right? Of the time. This is sort of like, if you were someone of the image, but maybe without the songs in their context. But like I said, it just, yeah, songs. It's not the songs problems. These songs, the lyrics are fantastic. It's just the, everything else around it is just miserable. She reminds me a little bit of like Alana Del Rey too. Um, Yes. And uh, I think for me, like just to wrap up my final thoughts, I think what John said about there being no emotion in her voice, um, that that hit the nail on the head for me. And and that droning aspect that Matt said, too. I just the voice was, yeah, complete, complete wash and kind of ruined the record. So, yeah, I think that maybe maybe you're right, John, maybe if this was in in hands of other people, other artists, producers, uh, whatever, that maybe would be a different thing. But it just I, I couldn't buy the this, I maybe listened to it three times and my my wife's like, I can't believe you got through that three times. You're doing way too much for, for this podcast. But, um, but I, I, it, it, it was, I just came away. It was the clear answer for me. It's the voice much more so than anything else um, was really what did it in. And then I, yeah, I think, I think it could have been better for, for sure. It couldn't have been worse. Yeah. I would also say that one of the things I wanted to do was see the tribute album that was, put out to Nico from all the people who 
were influenced by her, many of whom I liked, and it only reinforced that there was the ability for these songs to be great songs because in the hands of other folks they were remarkable. But wait, the was the tribute of... album was the tribute album this record or is just a compilation? Oh no, this was post uh, post uh, death. No, I understand that, but you're saying, but but what was it? Just was the was the tribute album for this particular it her, record? It was all it was all of her work, but all, all of her songs work. from okay. this were on it. But it's it only reinforced to me that in different hands these songs would have been there. But uh, but this is like listening to a spoken word album just with a female voice would be a way that I would describe this as well for people listening. Um, I don't. I, I wouldn't recommend it. I, it's going to be a hard listen for most folks listening, and then I don't even really know who would be the target audience, even amongst folks that might be receptive to her narrative. Sad, um, hips, sad, hips, sad, sad goth girls, maybe or hipsters. Get on this, hipsters. This is all you. But it's just funny because, like, I could give you five or six other recommendations of people who are influenced by her that are far enough back that you might as well start there and just skip ahead. So, um, you know, I, I don't mean to continue to pile on, but yeah, this, this one, when I made my list of albums of the sixties, this is dead last on the list. <laughs> so, yep. But, uh, unfortunately after all of that, I, I wish I could say that things worked out well for Nico, but, uh, there is a consistent thread and I'll end with this of, Throughout the 70s, she becomes involved with a French director, gets addicted to heroin, um, sort of lives a bohemian lifestyle, has a very interesting relationship with her son, who she, she's quite the parent for her son, including introducing him to heroin, living with him her entire life until his death. There was a little Whoa. bit of a codepe codependency mm. deal, that, not incest, but like codependency type deal. At one point, Nico's sort of uh, neglecting herself so much that there's a belief that she is pretty much trying to destroy her notorious beauty. Um, and in the 80s, she looks like a very different person, albeit with the same refined features. Um, and she herself mentions that it was part of a self-destructive streak. Uh, and as we talked about before, she she did die young. So um, Her son is... died before, him, before her? No, 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 no. She hit her oh. son did oh, not okay. she she died young uh okay. but she is she is well regarded and well loved by a veritable who's who of people many of whom overlap with the velvet underground as well and so if you were a music historian or or want to be one um it's certainly worth listening to so you can say you listen to it um but <laughs> i cannot recommend this so. We didn't mention the album cover either because the, her face on the album cover pretty much says it all. It's like it's like that's how I looked after I listened to the record. <laughs> I think she and, and you know me like I I have nothing against you know icy icy detached women who are sexy and tall. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of a demo for me, right? And so I would have thought that it would have been more. I love female singer songwriters more than I do males. I love sort of angsty, difficult. You know, women. You know, that's, women your, in terms of that's your holy grail, These John. All, it's like I was going to say, it should be my thing, but it I, I can't lie. It, it was not. You know what I mean? And all I could think of was, God, if this was put in the hands of the people that I liked, um, they would have had a field day with I think Even, I think John's just mad that he wasn't around in the 60s, so he could have slept with Nico, too. I, 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 you know, I, if I was in the art world, I probably would have been drawn into her spider webs, and I'd probably be talking about how wonderful she was right now. But, uh, because she seemed to have that effect on everybody. It's it's pretty She had amazing. the Kavorka. She is. And I and I don't mean to scandalize that, but she, you know, there men are just men who 
who know of women are very enamored by her. You know what I mean? And it's not like she was uh, their only uh, outlet, correct? You know, and she wasn't dating these people or the love of their lives either, but they were taken in. I will leave with this. If you Google the words Nico, Iggy Pop, and oral sex, be prepared for a good 30 <laughs> minutes of laughter because it is quite a story which I will not be telling on the podcast, but it is well worth checking out because Iggy Pop is a wonderful storyteller and that is amongst the funniest stories I've ever heard Iggy Pop tell. So there you go. That, and that is going to be how I leave this segment and show right leave there. Leave them wanting more. Leave, Cliffhanger. Yeah, yes. yes. And, and let's just say that uh, after Nico was done with Iggy Pop, he was not leaving others wanting more. And we'll just say that. So with that being said, that ends combing the stacks for this week. Uh, before I put a bow on it, guys, uh, Anything that you guys want to add or anything that we didn't touch on that you feel like we should? I think we covered it. All right. Uh, I forgot to mention that um, Bob Dylan does rank in in our top 20 artists of all time at number five. So for those who are keeping tally, he is number five of all time. No one's keeping tally. I am. (laughs) Well, I am keeping tally of what we're going to be doing next week because here's combing the stacks three episodes next week and we are going to be revisiting two bands that we've re- done already we're going to do green river by ccr credence clearwood revival it's going to be josh all right we're going to do the who sell out by the who an album that is going to be a heck of an interesting listen for everybody i think i'm going to be covering that one all right. and then matt always talks about his what is it foundations of jazz class that he took in college intro intro drops, to jazz intro to jazz and name drops the name of miles davis well guess what matt you get to cover Miles Davis, Sketches of Spain. So far, you have been less than enamored by jazz, but maybe because you've mentioned his name often in the intro to jazz class, perhaps Sketches of Spain is what gets you on the jazz train. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. We will see. That's a teaser. You'll have to tune in next week. This is your first uh, jazz album, Matt. It is. That's correct. All right. Bring bring the thunder that week. Yeah, I'll have to do a little bit of work this week instead of just going on those Dylan and Beatles notes. So <sighs> with that being said, we'd like to thank you for listening to Combing the Stacks. Please stay put for another 30 or so seconds so you can hear the different platforms that we're on, as well as our Twitter handle at Combing the for Josh, Matt, and John. Or for Josh and Matt, this is John. Have a wonderful week. Stay safe. Be healthy. It's been our pleasure to have hosted you for another episode of Combing the Stacks. But the time has come for us to turn off the lights and send you home with a fond farewell. Before you leave, remember that new episodes are available every Thursday on a variety of streaming platforms, including Anchor, Apple, Google, Spotify, Overcast, and Pocket Casts. You can email with questions, comments, or general feedback at combingthestacks at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at combingthe. We'd also like to give a shout out to Defy the Mall, who performs our theme song, Coastin, as well as Red Bellows, who are creating the ambiance you're currently experiencing by way of their track, Phonetic. Have a great night. <laughs>